So when I was in college, I uh, took a class my senior year that might have been the most challenging class I ever took. I don't claim to be all that intelligent, but the class was anatomy and physiology. I was newly married at the time. I uh, hadn't really cracked a whole lot of books uh, in college, and so my first test came due, and uh, I took it, and I made a 49 on my first class test for anatomy and physiology. At that point, I had a conversation with my newly married wife, and I said, hey, listen, I'm probably not going to see you for a while because I got to hit the books for the first time in my life. And so I did. By God's grace, I ended up with an A in that class, uh, but I can attest to you today, I don't know if I learned anything. Uh, matter of fact, uh, I was uh, at uh, a baby shower this last weekend, and it was kind of a unique deal because us men were invited to the shower. Now, real quickly, if you want to talk about masculinity uh, in men and all of that, uh, physical prowess, you don't go to baby showers. But let me give you a little, little clause. There was competition involved, and so we showed up. And... Uh, <laughs> It was going to be guys versus girls, and so one of the questions came across, and the question was, how many bones are in a baby's body, in which anatomy and physiology came up, and I knew the answer. Matter of fact, not only did I know the answer, I knew the answer in my head before the answers came. And so I uh, kind of boastfully uh, gleaned into the guys and said, hey, listen, I, I, I got it. Let's, okay, this is the answer. And then, of course, all the answers come, and one of the answers was, over 300 bones. And then another answer was like 170 bones. Another answer, one of them was 206 bones, in which I was like, that's it. To my surprise and ultimately my demise, the answer is 300 plus bones when a baby's born, in which I had to do due diligence because I thought it was wrong. And in fact, it is correct. But here's the deal. It worked out as a great sermon illustration in the beginning for this time this, this morning. But here's the deal. When a baby's born, over 300 bones are in their body. And as they grow up and as bones merge together and are welded together, we end up with 206. And that is correct. 206 bones. Now, that doesn't uh, accumulate for all the... Uh, or, or, for all the, the joints and all the tissue and all of the uh, other things that are happening in our body. But here's the deal. If you were to take all the moving parts in our body, not only is it a phenomenon, but it is ultimately unexplainable, the way that God has wired us. And here's what uh, we want to kind of dive into today, is we want to think about how God has ultimately wired us and all the moving parts in our own bodies and ultimately what God says, I desire of my church body. That with all the moving parts, with all the diverse different people, men and women, uh, different backgrounds, different cultures, different personalities, different gifts, gifts uh, and passions, not only from the Lord, but how in the world does God put all that together? And I don't know about you, but it seems a little bit chaotic. I mean, that how would God take hundreds of people and, and use them and make them one? And he goes, I, I do it because I, I want to order something and I ultimately want to produce something as a whole that works together and is fitted together and is joined together more than its individual parts. And so he goes, that's what the church should be about. That's how we should come together. 
And so that's what we're going to be leaning in today is the Apostle Paul, this guy who meets Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, who's converted to the way of Christianity, ultimately leaves his uh, Judaistic past behind and says, I want to proclaim and herald the good news of Jesus throughout the world. He begins to church plant, and one of the plants that he uh, is a part of is this church in Ephesus, a leading center in the world, one of the seven known wonders of the world. He goes, I want to help you be all that God has called you to be. And so uh, through the book, he's challenged this group of, uh, of people in the early church, and which he pastored for a handful of years. And one of the things he challenged them to was unity. And he goes, and listen, unity, it can be challenging, but he goes, it's produced in the way that you love one another, treat one another, have humble conversations towards one another. And so last week we kind of dove into that, but then he, he expands on that. And so last week we kind of looked at kind of an excellent attribute of the church, which is unity. But here's the deal. Today we want to we do an excellent assessment. Like how do you assess whether or not the church is working? And he goes, it's maturity. When you, when you all begin to reach maturity. And you might ask yourself, well, am I mature? Uh, and Paul answered the question in terms of how you would evaluate that. So we're going to dive in to Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to look at verses 7 through 16. Here's the deal. If you are in this place and you don't have a Bible, we would love to bless you one. Uh, with one. And so connection point is through the double doors to your right and my left. Hey, if you'll go there, uh, maybe you're a first-time guest and you're like, so you're going to give me Splash Kingdom tickets and a Bible? And the answer is, yes, we are, if you need one, okay? Uh, why? Because we want you to daily abide with the Lord. We want you to know Him. We want you to enjoy Him, have fellowship with Him, because it, it brings us closer to Him and one another. And so let's dive in. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, when he uses that word grace there, it's the word haris, which literally means um, God's benevolent kindness. It is the idea of what loving kindness of God is. And he says, and he gives it each to, one, each to each one of us. And he goes, and according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so when he says the measure, he uses an interesting word there. It's the word in the Greek metron, which is where we get... You're like, I don't know. I don't know. And that's okay. It's metric, meter. It's where you get the measurement of metric. That's where it's from. It's derived from that Greek term metron. And so you get a measurement. And so he goes, it is a portion by God's grace to give you something good. And he goes, and a gift. And that gift word there is this word uh, doreo, which literally means a gift in which you never earned and will never repay. It's different than a gift that you're going to see here in a few moments. It's not a tangible gift. It's not something you can wrap your heads around it, uh, or even get your hands on. It is, a, it is a gift from God that unbeknownst to you or me, unworthy of it all, he goes, I give you grace. It is a gift that you didn't earn, you didn't deserve, you can't, you can't repay. It is just the gratuitous goodness of God that he would... Give us his grace. And so that's what Paul says. It is a portion to you that believe in him to have grace, a gift from God that you will never, ever repay. He is just good. And even though we're sinners, God demonstrated his love for us, Romans 5, 8, that he died for us. That's the gift of God. And in verse 8, it says, And therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now look at that. It says that he ascended, 
and led host a, cap, a host of captives, and then he gave gifts to men. A, a different word, not the same gift, dorea, but a word doma, which is a tangible gift, one you can get your hand around. So think a gift on the table at a birthday party. That's a difference. So you can't get your head or your hands around God's grace and his goodness. Loving kindness that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. You can't wrap your head around that, let alone get your hands on it. But he goes, the gifts of God that I bestow to men, and he uses the word there, anthropos, which is humans. Male, female, slave, free. Doesn't matter. We can all be one in Christ. He goes, those are the the gifts that you and I can enjoy, but only when the captives are led to be free. And so when he uses that word captives, that he ascended to lead a host of captives, he, he uses this word there that literally means to take captive the captive. So think about that. Take captive the captive. He goes, that's why I ascended. And then he gets a little bit more confusing here. He goes, He did this to give gifts to men and saying he ascended, verse 9, what does it mean? But he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now what? Okay, so he ascended and then he ascended to descend, ultimately to to descend and and to ascend again. Like what does that all mean? Like Paul, it seems like kind of confusing there. Uh, I think there's a couple of different things. If you really want to dive into it, there's, that's probably a great question for you. You can explore that further uh, along with some of the things that Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3. Here's what really, if you boil it all down to, you just want the simple explanation. Here's what it is. Jesus is the perfect God-man. He comes to earth. Begins on a starry night in Bethlehem, born in a manger. He's a tangible manifestation of God in human form. Jesus says, if you want to see God, then look at me. You can touch him. You can dine with him. You can commune with him. You can learn from him. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the one in the Old Testament that was promised about. He was the Messiah that would set men free. Free from what? Free from bondage of oppression and government forms? No. Free from sin. Ultimately, that we're all enslaved to. Romans 5 would say that because we're born into Adam, we all are sin. We're all separated, alienated from God forever. Why? Because we're sinners. Real quickly, just a quick poll. How many of you in this room have ever sinned? Just go ahead and raise your hand, okay? So in this text, you are the captive. You are the one who is held captive to your sin, which makes you in bondage and enslaved to the prince of the power of the air is what Paul would say earlier. He goes, you are the captive, and yet Jesus, here's what he does. He descends. He dies. He takes on death and the sting of it. He tastes death. He satisfies the legal demands of God and the wrath of sin on your behalf. And so he descends to the lower parts. He goes as low as you could possibly go. Philippians 2 says that he became obedient to taste death. He became obedient to death on the cross. Why? So that the captive sinners might be set free. And so he dies, ultimately descends, and then he ascends again. And when he ascends, here's what he does. He takes the captive captive. He goes, if you are a sinner, he goes, if you'll hang on to me, he goes, I can lift you into everlasting life. It is by grace and the kindness of God, his benevolence towards sinners, that when Jesus died, he tasted death, took on the legal demands of God, he died, and because of the third day, not the first day, not the second day, but the third day, he rose again. He satisfied all that there was 
in death, and he takes the captive captive. Anyone who would believe in him, in their heart, confess with their mouth that he is Lord, they shall be saved. The captive should be ransomed and set free. That's what Paul says. And I don't know about you, but I'm like, it's amen. Praise the Lord. Why? Because captives don't set themselves free because one day the captive decides that he's going to do good deeds. The captive doesn't set himself free because one day he wakes up and says, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. Listen, a captive is a captive and you are held, listen, against your own will. A captive wants to be free, but doesn't know how to set themselves free. A captive is oppressed, they're estranged, they're mistreated, they're deceived, they're manipulated. That's what a captive is. And that's what the enemy desires to do, to keep you and I in darkness. In our sins, slaves to disobedience, doing what we think is right, although every single time we gratify the desires of our flesh, we become more what? oppressed, more confused, more alienated from the God in which we want to know. And so, yet God says, and so listen, I want to set the captives free. I want to let the oppressed know that they can walk in freedom in Christ. That's what he does. And so it's by grace that we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves, so that no one can boast. It is the free gift of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says to the Ephesians just a couple of chapters earlier, that's the idea. And so here it is. He goes, I have done that so that you might know him, the one who is above the heavens and who fills all things. And so what Jesus does is he tastes death on our behalf. Matter of fact, Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says in a similar way in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or 15, uh, yeah, 15, he begins at verse 50, but I'm just going to read 55 through 58. So here it is. It says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the works of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He goes, God sent his son, perfect in every way, tried six times, accused of being guilty though he was innocent, died, suffered at the hands of men. He was oppressed. He descended, ultimately ascended so that you and I might be free. He tasted the cup of wrath. He drank it on our behalf so that men and women who would believe in him could have everlasting life. That's it. That's the gospel. That is the good news. That we don't work our way to God, but God worked his way to us. That his son was obedient. And then he gives those gifts to men. Those gifts, not by just in a sense grace, but gifts in which have more of a tangible sense. Uh, What are they? Romans 3.24, Romans 5.15 says that we have gifts from God to humanity, to all humans, male or female. What are they? One of them is the gift of salvation. Acts 2.38, Acts 10.45, Acts 11.17, Hebrews 6.4 says it's the gift of the Holy Spirit, which he fills us and dwells us. Romans 5.17, he gives us the gift of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 9.15, he gives us the gift of full supply. He gives us the gift of everlasting life. Revelation 21.6, Revelation 22.17, 1 Corinthians 12, 4-11, as well as this text in verse 11, he gives us the gift of God's people. He gives us good things, tangible expressions of God's faithfulness to us. And in verse 11, he says, and so let me share some of the gifts I give you in the body. He goes, I give you apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. 
Now, in the case of the apostles, there's this word apostolos, which literally means to be a messenger with orders. Paul says, I am an apostle. You think about the 12. Uh, in the New Testament context, you shouldn't just limit to the 12, but you should also think about Timothy. You should think about Barnabas, the son of encouragement. You should also think about Silvanus. All of those guys were, in a sense, guys with orders. They were messengers. The question that you might ask is, well, is there a prophet still today? And in the form of an Old Testament prophet that would raise up and speak a new word on behalf of God, that would be contradictory to the scripture. Revelation said we shouldn't add or take away. In a sense, God's word is sealed. His word is truth. It is sealed. It is what we know about God. And so we don't add to it. So listen, you can't have Jesus pop up in Southern Mexico and claim to be a new apostle with a divine word that you should pay attention to. That's no, no. But in the apostolic sense of this, you have a guy who is a messenger with orders, an ambassador for the cause of Christ, rightly dividing the word of truth and imploring people to live for him. Yes, you can have that in that sense in the church still. But not in the sense of an Old Testament prophet who would raise up and say something different. Can't have that anymore. So we don't get to have a divine word from God that is contradictory or in addition to the divine text, the word of God, which is already set in canon. The prophets. What is a prophet? An interpreter of hidden things. It's the word prophetes, which literally means um, it's one who urges people for the benefit of God. I mean, so they instruct, they encourage, they edify, they stimulate. Uh, there are people who will do pretty much anything to get the, the attention of people. That's what they do. Uh, prophets of that sense. Uh, again, not in the sense of a, an apostle like Paul or an Old Testament prophet, but one who urges and pleads for the cause of Christ. An evangelist, what are they? That they are people who bring glad tidings and all they want to talk about is the salvation of God. Oftentimes, that's, that's what they want to do. Just bring good greetings. They herald salvation. Then you've got the shepherds. The shepherds, it's a word in the Greek, is poimen, which literally means to pastor. Uh, they're the defenders of the flock. They're the ones who have a staff in their hand. They, they uh, fend off wolves. They care for their sheep. They, they tend to them. They're not domineering. They don't exercise um, manipulation or control. First Peter 5, they joyfully serve the body. That's a pastor or a shepherd. And then you also have a teacher. Uh, that word teacher, didaskos, which literally means they're fit to teach. They rightly handle the word of truth. When they teach, it's, there's power in it. When they teach, you learn something. When they teach, ultimately God is promoted and he's edified. That's the goal. And so you should have all of these things working in the church, although oftentimes they look as if they're a little different than what you might see in the Old Testament or even in the early church. But they are not less powerful, though they are different. They are still useful for the same things. You go, well, what are they useful for? I mean, why do we have pastors anyway? I mean, isn't it to do all the work? Isn't that why we hire a pastor? I mean, isn't it why we have teachers? I mean, don't we have teachers so that I can come and learn something from them? I mean, isn't that why we have journey group leaders? That's, I can't be a journey group leader. That's why we have you as a journey group leader. You're supposed to teach me something. Hey, don't we have evangelists? And hey, don't we pray for evangelists? And hey, don't we love Courtney, an evangelist? She's going to go, and hey, listen, I don't want to be an evangelist. I just want to pay for the evangelist, so I'll send a check. I don't want to go across the country. And here's the deal. The reason you have gifts in the body is so that the body is built up. We don't have these gifts in the body so that the rest of the body is doing less. Matter of fact, listen very, very, very carefully. 
God doesn't intend for a handful of us in this body, the believers at Stone Point, to be pillars while the rest of us are peons. God doesn't desire for some of you in here to be peons while there's a handful of us that make it happen. God doesn't desire for us to listen to Courtney's story and go, wow, isn't it amazing what God's doing in Courtney's life? Let me give to her, pray for her, and encourage her. No, God desires for you to be built up in the body and sent out just like Courtney. The only difference is, is that you might not go to Morocco and you might not go to China. You might go to Roland Oaks or you might go to your little neighborhood. But the bottom line is we're to be a light in the world. We're to shine brightly, Philippians 1. Like stars in the universe, Philippians 2, I'm sorry. That's the goal. Do you understand the context? And so why are these people, the reason people preach, the reason people get excited, the reason people encourage, they pastor, they fin, they care, is so that the body of Christ is built up. Matter of fact, verse 12 says that they would equip the saints for the work of ministry. I think it's really important to ask, okay, if there's going to be saints that are equipped, who are the saints? Because I don't really see myself as a saint, okay? A saint, anybody redeemed by the perfect work of Jesus on the cross. If you were a captive, led free of captivity because of Jesus, you are now a saint. Regardless of how you view yourself, God says he's imputed upon us righteousness. And so he took your filth, he took your sin, he took all of your imperfections, and he placed his goodness upon you. Doesn't matter how you see yourself. At the end of the day, I don't need you to build up some self-esteem about yourself so you feel better. Jesus sees you as redeemed. It's enough because Jesus covers you. Live in that, be rooted and built up in that, and begin to overflow with thankfulness in that. Jesus is enough. He is good, he is kind, he is benevolent, he has made you a part of the body. You're not an individual part, but you are a part of the greater whole. Now be built up. Now the word built up there is an interesting word to me, which is the word uh, katartismos, which literally means to be fully furnished. Now you know when I'm most at home? I'm most at home when our house is fully furnished. Listen, I, I, I can't, I despise the early days of moving into a house and you've got like one bed set up and then the kids are sleeping like a futon and, the, and you, you have a microwave meals and it's just like, it's just pure agony. You know what I mean? It's like, it just doesn't fit. Like you, you, you just, you're eating out some meals, you're microwaving stuff, like you're having popcorn for dinner because that's the best thing you got. And, and there's just, you're just not settled. Every, your life feels chaotic. It's miserable for everybody. Your sleep patterns are all thrown off. What Paul says is this. Listen, lean in with me. The body of Christ is built up when everybody is fully furnished. When everybody is working in rhythm. There's not chaos. It's, you're, just, you're just enjoying what there is in Christ. That is the idea. And so Jesus didn't merely descend just to give you salvation. Jesus descended and ascended to overcome death, sin, and the grave, to give you salvation, to give you good gifts, to build you up in the body so that you would what? Lack nothing. There you go. The idea is that you would lack nothing. We'll see in a sec, but also to do the work of ministry. And the word of uh, ministry there could be service in your Bible as well. It's the word diakonia, which literally is the noun feminine of another similar word, diakonos. 
or diakonos. Uh, it's this, it's the fa- and what, here's, the, here's what he's saying. He goes, the reason the body of Christ is built up is so that people can serve. And service in the body is not limited to male or, or, or alone, but it's male and female. It's people who can do the work of the body. And so think people who greet one another, wait tables together. That's the idea of the word. It's to serve. It is to be hospitable. And he goes, Anybody in the body of Christ, male and female, can be built up to do the work of the service. And there is lots of service within the body to be done. And everybody should be thinking about how I step up in that role. Matter of fact, that's what he's saying. When the body of Christ is fully furnished, everybody's doing its part. Why? So that you feel better about yourself? So that you get pastors off your back who go, hey, aren't you a part of the body? You should be serving here. Listen, if you're serving out of guilt, compulsion, or obligation, you're serving for the wrong reason. If you're serving because somehow it makes you feel better about yourself, then you're serving for the wrong reason. The reason we serve in the body, the reason we're equipped is so the body of Christ might be built up. It's to glorify the one who is the head over all things. The one who fills all, over all, created all, is in all. That's it. That's the goal. And so the goal of this is simply this. How long should equipping take? And it is forever. Like we don't ever arrive and and you go, well, how do I know when our body has arrived? Listen, here it is. You ready? When every single part of the body is fully furnished, mature in your own walk, lacking nothing, leaning in to the service of the entire body that nothing in our body lacks its part. That's when we know that we've arrived. And so I I ask that question often. Do, Do I think we've arrived? And can I just give you an emphatic, absolutely not, we haven't arrived. We haven't arrived because there's many parts of our body that aren't doing their part. Uh, we haven't arrived because lots of the people that are part of our body that aren't doing their part actually um, is because it's, my, it's our fault as leaders and teachers. We haven't equipped you to do the part. Um, and so there's a lot of, if you wanted to say, oh, blame to go around. And at the end of the day, it's not a blame at all. What it is is there's more work to do. We always are wanting to grow in that. And so can I just make a confession? I think here at Stone Point, we can equip better. I really believe we can equip better. I think we can be more diligent about helping people to explore who they are in Christ and ultimately what your spiritual giftings are about how God wants to deploy you for the work of service in the body and also around the world. We can do a better job. I think we can do a better job of in a sense, helping encourage one another to see what all God has for the whole body. I think we can do a better job. One of the most tangible ways I think we could do a better job is just as leaders be a part of of more of our community. Uh, for instance, like we have journey groups here. It's a bunch of adults that meet together. Uh, we also have student ministry groups on Wednesday nights. We have kids ministry groups that after a large group teaching, in case you were wondering, they'll also go into groups. I think we could all do a better job stepping into those groups as leaders. And not for the sake of giving a grade, for the sake of saying, hey, how do we help spur you on? How do we help fill in the gap for you? Hey, are there challenges that your group's having that we can help meet? How do we train you better to do the work of ministry? How do we fully furnish your group? That's the goal. Hey, are you lacking an end table? Hey, are you lacking some a couch? What are you lacking? How, how do we help fully furnish your group so that you are being faithfully deployed for the work of service? That's the goal. Can we do a better job? Absolutely. Should we do a better job? Yes. Why? Because the goal is for us to all attain unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, verse 13. Until when? Until we're completely mature. That word there in the Greek, mature, is the word teleos, which Jesus used a similar word on the cross when he said it's finished. 
And so that word here literally just means that you will know that you're mature when you have finished the race, when you have run the course. I don't know about you, um, but you might ask the question, do I think that the church here at, at Stone Point will ever be fully mature? And I would say, I don't know, but I'm going to die trying. Do you hear what I just said? I don't know, but I'm going to die trying. I'm going to give my life to the cause of Christ that the church of God might be thoroughly built up, that every single person in here who would call themselves a member of the body here, which means that you're a member, you're fully devoted, that you're plugged in, that you give to the work of the ministry, you serve the body. You, you go, our goal is to, is to get you to where you're mature. And the question is, is why? So that our church grows and we're the biggest church in Van Zandt County or so that we can brag about all that God's done here? No. Why do we grow? And it is so that what? We are no longer tossed to and fro by the waves and the carried about, by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. At the end of the day, the reason that we equip one another is so that we're not easily led astray. I love this word um, here uh, when it says that you wouldn't be tossed to and fro by the waves and the wind. And then it says, and by the cunningness of other schemes. And, and here's the deal. That word cunning is this word uh, kubea in the Greek. And here's what it means. Dice playing cheaters. You ever played with some dice playing cheaters? Okay, maybe it's not dice playing. You're playing some like uh, card game and like there's always somebody that keeps the ace of spades in the pocket. They're dice playing cheaters. They are, they are cunning. They're crafty. They'll cheat to win. Uh, I have a family member and he says, braggingly, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Anybody in here, go ahead, confess it amongst men, you're that way. Go ahead, raise your hand. Go ahead, you're a cheater. Go ahead, tell us. Cheater, okay, see, some of you are lying, and I think that's equally as big of a problem. So the, the deal is this. Here's what he goes. He goes, listen, at the end of the day, as we grow up into maturity, he goes, we shouldn't be led astray by people who are dice-playing cheaters or who they're crafty or they're cunning or they want to manipulate you. And you might look around your culture and you go, well, what does that mean? Should that be obvious to us? And can I just tell you real quickly, that the best cheaters aren't obvious. Like you really have to know what you're looking for. You have to be paying attention. You have to be on guard. And so what that means is, is that you can't be easily led astray. You, you got to know the word. You got to be ready in season, out of season. You got to be continually reproved and corrected. You got to be training for righteousness sake, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. The goal is, is that God would grow us up. And the question that you should ask yourself, listen, lean in with me. When you're looking for a body, a church, a fellowship to, to be a part of, the question you should not ask is, hey, do I like the ministries they offer? Do I like the music they play? Do I like the, the guy who speaks? Is he charismatic? At the end of the day, what you ought to ask yourself, are they faithful to handle the word of truth? Do they rightly divide it? Do they teach? Do they evangelize? And more than that, will they help me be deployed for the work of service? Because at the end of the day, listen, if you think that the church is there to, in a sense, comfort you, appease you, or just kind of let you sit in the seat and do your thing in a way that Courtney described then listen, you're a part of the wrong body. Matter of fact, a lot of us, we get offended that in some ways that the church, meaning the body here at Stone Point, is actually going to encourage you to get out of your seat to do something. But listen, that ought to be one of the most refreshing things to us in this room. That we are a priesthood of believer, that we can grow in the unity, that we can not be tossed to and fro, so the work of God is being done. That's the goal. 
verse 15, so that we would rather speak truth in love as we grow up to one who is the head in every way uh, into Christ. And so we should think about that. How do we grow up? We, we speak the word of truth in love. What does that mean? Um, here's a good question. Can you really love someone and not tell them the truth? Can you really love someone and not tell them the truth, whether that be a spouse or a friend or a coworker? Because oftentimes we think, well, I don't really want to tell them the truth because it's going to hurt their feelings. But what if you just look past their feelings and you just said, hey, I'm going to deal with their feelings by the way I tell them the truth. I'm going to do that gently. I'm going to do it reverently. I'm going to do it with respect. I'm going to do it in a gracious, loving way. Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3, we discussed last week. But at the end of the day, can you really love someone and not tell them the truth? And the answer is no, you can't. And the reason why is because Jesus has no darkness in him at all. He is full of light. He is full of truth. And so if you're walking with Jesus, then you can't walk in darkness, which means that you can't be crafty, cunning, or deceitful. You can't, in one hand, claim to love someone, act as if you love them, and then somehow or another, you're not loving them well behind the scenes. Does that make sense? And so the question is, how do I speak the truth in love? Well, you got the answer there. The question is, is what does this mean? Does this mean in every relationship, like just as we deal with our friends, we should tell them the truth? And the answer is yes, but it should also mean for the corporate body. So it's the rule individually, you should tell somebody the truth, whether that be somebody in your journey group or whether that should be a family member that you've had a really difficult time with over the last handful of years, or maybe it's your spouse or maybe it's one of your children, you should tell them the truth in love. But it also means that the church, the church should boldly proclaim the truth of God and love. We should, tell them what sound, we should tell people what sound doctrine is, the implications of such. For instance, let me just give you a handful of reasons we should be built up telling people in truth. And one of them is because of sound doctrine. Here's what sound doctrine does. Sound doctrine keeps us from sin and immoral lifestyles. Sound doctrine keeps us from falling away. Sound doctrine produces sound teaching. It trains us in righteousness. So the reason that we've got to boldly herald the good news of Christ, his salvation, his growth in our life, is so that the body of Christ is built up, but also people know the truth. And listen, the truth actually sets people free. Why? Because the truth means there's no darkness and everything is light. And then verse 16, And from the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, and that it builds itself up in love. And so the question is, is what happens when every part is doing their job, they're fully mature, they're growing, they're, uh, in a sense, building themselves up individually as a part of the, col- the, the entire whole, corporately, what happens? God goes, that's when I show up. And here's the cool thing. In verse 16, the only time it's used in your entire Bible, the phrase, each part is working properly, is a Greek word, energeia, uh, which is think inertia, think energy. And listen, it is a supernatural phenomenon not produced by men. The only time that phrase is used, Paul uses explicitly, and it's the only time in your entire Bible. Here's what he says. Y'all ready for this? I'm going to close with this. What he's saying is this. When your body is being equipped by the gifts of God, pastors, teachers, apostolic leaders, 
people who will shepherd and care for you, evangelists, so that the body of Christ is thoroughly built up, that everything in the body is fully furnished. You're deploying your gifts. You're using them. You are speaking the truth in love. You're pursuing unity. You are doing everything that you can for the cause of Christ. He goes, the body of Christ is being built up into him who is the head. That means that the head, Christ, is sufficiently seeing the hands and the feet and the fingers and all 216 bones along with the joints, the marrow, the ligaments, all the other things, the tissue working together in such a way that the Holy Spirit of God shows up and he goes, and there is an inertia, an explosion that happens when all the people are welded together. There is a heat produced that when you sent out together, people cannot help but see how God showed up. I don't know about you, but that's why I'm here. That's the only reason that I keep getting up day in and day out. Guys, that is the reason that I don't do another work. It's the reason that I go to bed at night and I get up in the next morning and say, God, would you help us to equip our body in a way that produces good in our lives? And I pray that we would say, God, how am I a part of the body? And am I doing my part? Am I growing a maturity? And God, what do you want me to do as my next step? I pray you would have that conversation and that you would encourage that in your own life. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you. I pray that as we wrap up our time together, as we sing a couple of songs, I pray that we would see our time with you as a sweet experience. I pray that as we look around at our neighbor, that we would see that each and every person in this room can play a part of the the whole. That at the end of the day, if one part suffers, the whole body suffers. Uh, What's it look like if the church came together in that way? Lord, what would it look like if we were being built up together in such a way that you showed up and it was a supernatural phenomenon. God, that's what we ask for. We ask that you would move in us, that you would change us radically, that you would help us to be your men and women using the gifts that you've given us to serve the body. We love you. Thank you that you even allow us to be a part of it. And uh, we ask that as we sing, that God, that you would be magnified, glorified, and ultimately that we would give you all the glory and the praise in which you do, whether in word or deed or even in our singing, I pray that you are magnified. In Jesus' name, amen.